Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Good Theology Podcast. It is a joy to have you with us, as always. Huge thank you to all of our regular listeners. We so appreciate our growing community of people who regularly listen to what David and I talk about. It's a humbling thing. So thank you. If you haven't already, go to pulpitai.com. Check out this new tool that we have built uh, that will be widely available very soon. You can sign up to participate. We've already had hundreds of people signal their interest. And so we are very excited about it. It's going to be a great tool for, well, we built it really for small to medium-sized churches, but I think it will be very useful uh, even for large churches as well. At least several large churches have indicated their interest in it in terms of producing all different kinds of supportive content for um, your church, for discipleship means. So you can take a sermon, input it, uh, take a podcast even, input it, and it can help you create everything from discussion questions to reading outlines, blog posts, you name it. Check it out, pulpitai.com. David, so good to be joined with you. And we're going to be together in person so, so soon for our annual Holy Spirit Conference here in Los Angeles at our church, C3LA. Cannot wait to be with you. We're also going to be joined by Dr. Jack Deere, who is a legend in the Word and Spirit realm, community, people, that that whole group. <laughs> And uh, we're looking forward to hosting him as well. David, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm really good. Um, you and I are both in the process of moving. We just moved into our new place yesterday. And my wife is currently at home unpacking. And your wife is at your house packing, getting ready for a move. You're ahead of us. For once in my life. It's a moving experience. What have you been up to recently? I feel like, you know, we've summer's been a little bit sparse. Our apologies to our listeners. It's just been uh, surprisingly busy for the summer travel as well i suppose but w what you been doing selling and buying a house so uh and you know i've got a bunch of odds and ends people that i've talked in meetings consultations etc a bit of preaching trying to get my which i eventually did get my phd thesis of antique years um digitized oh and wow now, yeah i'm now trying to get it um from the PDF into uh, docs, uh, if anyone out there has bright ideas mm -hmm. how to do that, uh, so that I can... If you have any bright ideas on how to help David with that, you can email mw at vast.faith, hound Michael, and say, you know how to do it. I need some of that open AI stuff. There you go. On it a only works scale. with audio right now. Industrial scale, 600 pages of PhD thesis boiled down anyway. <laughs> And then I'm using that to, um, when, I, when I'm able to work on it, I'm using it to construct an MA course, a second MA course that, that I've done, or I'm, I've done one, and this is number two for Theos University. We've started cool. a grad school uh, as of a few months ago, and we already have, I'm not sure how many, it's probably just in the single digits, but we do have a number of MA students enrolled, and I think our undergraduate is um, at record numbers of nearly 200, something wow. like that. And we have um, our first, something like an accredited cross accreditation, but not, not exactly, but something like that, where Southeastern University has given us 75% of a, a BA or BTH, whatever their degree is, mm -hmm. um, or students that have completed our work. And so, you know, when you're mm, starting cool. something round up, uh, it's the, the accreditation is really, really tough to get into, but we're making uh, major strides. Thanks to my colleague, Chris Palmer, the Dean. And, um, 
you know, for any listening that are familiar with Theos, it's not just sort of an online source of um, material that you pay a few dollars a month and listen to what you want, which is great for that. But the bigger vision is educational because we live in a rapidly declining environment and culture and the more truth we can get into it, the better. I didn't intend to say any of that, and I'm not quite sure if you even opened the door for it, but I've given my ad for Theosu. No, it's great. Huge shout out to our friends at Theosu. We love them. Uh, David, how much confidence do you put in your everyday average seminary these days? Well, you know, I'm, I'm so far removed from it. I mean, all the liberal ones were going drastically downhill 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. in terms of academic uh, requirements, and they're pretty much extinct now. And I do think that the less seriously you treat the Word of God, the further your academic standards are going to decline, because mm-hmm. to understand, study and understand properly the Word of God, that's, uh, for anyone that is a, a Christian, that's a very serious matter, so you're going to treat it very seriously. And I think that's why evangelical seminaries have maintained much higher academic standards than the traditional liberal ones. Um, but the problem today is that it's all become so darned expensive uh, to, you know, uproot yourself and go somewhere and study for several years, pay the tuition fees and all the rest of it is a killer. And the the, one of the advantages of the online world is that we can adapt and deliver a lot of that, a lot of that education online. And I think that any seminary, any theological seminary that does not is not moving into on online teaching is going to is going to be in trouble in a few years. So Theos, you know, comes from it's a bolt out of the blue. You know, it's from outside the establishment educational establishment, even the evangelical establishment, but it's got a lot of velocity and it stepped into a, a real niche uh, that, you know, people are finding valuable. So it's 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 encouraging, you know, because we, we don't want to have pastors, and I, I appreciate that all, all pastors do not have to be educated to a high, high standard. You can be a very good pastor and maybe not have the capacity to study Greek or whatever. But on the other hand, if we don't have some people, a a, a reasonable number of leaders in the body of Christ who are biblically really grounded, we're Mm going to be in trouble. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the garbage that's going on today, and people are buying into what, you know, they call it postmodern wolf or whatever they call it, but actually it's nothing more than reheated liberal 19th century liberal theology. This is exactly the same. But, they don't have any perspective, historical perspective. They haven't studied. They don't know what they're talking about. They're playing with fire. They don't realize the consequences of uh, pastor contacted me yesterday and said, well, I've got a snap member. He's a little bit dicey about, you know, was there a real Jonah or a real Job or the flood and this and that. I said, well, the problem is that Jesus seemed to think there was, if you read the New Testament. So, you know, if you want to disagree with J- Jesus, then... Uh, well, you can take a, a, a whack at it, but it wouldn't be advisable. But people just, you know, we need to teach people so that, because if if you have church leaders 
who ascend to positions of influence simply because of their dynamic personality or they're great communicators on the stage or whatever, and that's it, they are extremely vulnerable to the enemy coming in and, you know, uh, leading them astray, and they won't even know they're astray. Are there like key tenets to liberal theology? Like, are there what are the what are the poles that hold up well, the, the anchor of liberal theology is the rejection of God's word mm. and so that's a very why, low view of the Bible. And the, yeah, and and that's why you know because I was educated in liberal theological seminaries for the most part, I I saw this firsthand, and I I had to, you know, I had to fight my own battles. And one one of the things I found out was that the liberals are not interested in, they live in a total echo chamber. If you go over to an evangelical institution, they will study everybody. If you go to the liberal side, uh, they'll barely, I mean, they might know who N.T. Wright is. They won't like him and they won't read his material because it doesn't, they, it, it doesn't co cohere with their echo chamber. You know, so the, the, the real nub of the, the whole thing was the rejection of scripture back, you know, a couple hundred years ago. And that's still, that's still the issue. So anyway, and when you say I'm, rejection of scripture, you mean that they're, they rejection of the authority, the inspiration, the inerrancy of scripture. And so when you start to go down that road and you don't have any historical perspective, you don't have any uh, breadth of, of teaching or instruction then uh, you don't realize the consequences of what you're embracing. And, you know, by the time you do it, maybe too late. And so I really think that, uh, you know, what we need to be able, I mean, why is it that all of a sudden, supposedly we've got people leaving churches because, you know, um, uh, they, they are pro-LGBTQ or something. Let's take that as an example. And think there should be same-sex marriage in church. Well, how did these people ever get raised in church and be so badly taught that they simply assumed this was a fact? And then when the church leadership is pushed and has to make a stand on it, everybody gets offended. Well, that should never happen in the first place. And so it's just a, it's it's a real problem. Uh, but you know. Um, this is one of the reasons why in the Western world, I always say we need our brothers and sisters from every other part of the world who often don't have these problems. You know, they, they live in a, a much more powerful, much greater respect for the word of God and much greater experience the spirit of God. Well, I think that's the, that's the key, right? Is the West is so marked by the enlightenment. And as far as I understand it, liberal theology is, is the, the product in a lot of ways of the enlightenment. And it's the, the, uh, the desacramentalization, <laughs> I think that's the word I would use, the disenchantment, uh, the despiritualizing of Christianity. So it's looked at through natural lenses. And if you're going to look at scripture, for example, through a natural lens, then obviously you're not going to look at it as divinely authored, ultimately by the Holy Spirit. Um, and then you're also going to uh, have a really hard time with all of the miraculous accounts in scripture, most notably the incarnation and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so now you get into the realm of uh, throwing away all kinds of important uh, points about the atonement and the ultimate hope of the Christian. Um, and then essentially you just, uh, you you slide into being nothing more than a socio-political uh, soldier who's trying to 
create some Christian-esque version of heaven on earth through natural means. It's, that seems to me that that's how it goes. Yeah, no, I think you described it really well. And uh, yeah, I, I want to see it like a mission to like re-spiritualize Christianity, help, help people see how sacred the things that we get to partake in are. Well, we'll be taking a whack at, at it at the Holy Spirit Conference, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Yes. So come to Los Angeles. hs-conference.com. You can register for that. And in the spirit of uh, the Holy Spirit, we're going to do a couple of episodes on uh, the Holy Spirit, third member of the Trinity. And um, so for this first episode, we're going to do kind of an overview uh, across the Bible, especially focusing on the Old Testament. And I'm sure we'll get into the new as well. And then for the next episode, we'll do a um, a dive into First Corinthians uh, 12, 13, and 14 um, and discuss some gifts of the Holy Spirit. So let's do that. Let's, let's kick it off with part one and let's talk about the Holy Spirit, broadly speaking, beginning in the beginning of the Bible. I've just brought up some scripture references here. If I seem to be looking in the wrong direction. Okay. I have um, my Bible. I, my... Uh, little my set of notes are completely blotting you out, Jake. I apologize. I should probably move it over so that it just blots me out, and I, oh, I can't. Okay, here we go. So, if we want to understand the Holy Spirit, uh, and this is what people don't realize, we have to start in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, we have to start in the first chapter of Genesis. And if you look at it, you see the Spirit hovering over the face of the waters as God begins to create the world. So the Holy Spirit is the agent by which the original creation was actually shaped and formed. So he was there at the beginning. Obviously, the creation was ruined through our rebellion, but equally, God's intention is to restore what was lost. He's a God of restoration. And there's a new creation coming that the Bible speaks of. And if the Holy Spirit was there at the beginning of the first creation— We should expect the Holy Spirit will be there at the beginning of the restoration of creation or the new creation. And that's exactly what we find if you fast forward from Genesis all the way to Ezekiel. In chapters 36 and 37, you get Ezekiel prophesying that the day is coming when he's talking about when Jesus comes, obviously, that uh, God says, I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put my spirit, capital S, within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And then in the next chapter, 37, uh, as we know, Ezekiel has this extraordinary vision of the dry bones, and the breath comes into them, and uh, they come back to life. And so uh, the prophetic word uh, continues in Ezekiel 37 that God is going to place his spirit within his people, his dead people, and he's going to restore them. And so what is interesting, uh, and the reason I skip from uh, Genesis to Ezekiel, is that there's a remarkable parallel here um, between the original creation account and Ezekiel 36 and 37. Because if we go back to Genesis, I'm just looking at my scripture reference here. It says in Genesis chapter 2, God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. Now, in Ezekiel 37, God takes lifeless bones, causes breath to enter them, and they come to life. So he causes his breath to come upon them that the dead may live. So what the 
the significance is this, that this prophesied last day, latter day coming to life, what Zika's prophesying of God's people in Christ, it re recapitulates, repeats, so to speak, the original creation account of God breathing into Adam and bringing him life. So there's a two-stage process in both. Can I, can I pause you there yeah. and ask a, a couple of questions? So uh, a couple of things come to mind. Number one, the Holy Spirit in Genesis chapter one is hovering over the face of the waters. Is there a link between that and water baptism in the sense of, because uh, I, I know the early church, uh, uh, they put a lot of emphasis on receiving the Spirit, as far as I know, at, at your water baptism. Um, and certainly Peter links that at Pentecost, the people would be baptized and receive the, the gift of God, the Holy Spirit. I, I don't know. It's a cool image how the spirit is hovering over the face of the waters to breathe life into, uh, God's creation, man. And then also, uh, he's hovering, so to speak over the waters of baptism to breathe life into us. I'm not saying it happens in that order, but is there some kind of link there? I'm, I'm happy if the answer is no, but it, well, it seems no, interesting. I mean, the, the, the link is uh, water as symbolic as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. So in Ezekiel 36, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and I will put my spirit within you. So um, water is a symbol of the spirit. And um, what happens is that in Genesis, there is a dividing of the waters and land it for the creation of land. So life comes forth out of the dividing of the waters. At the Red Sea, there is a dividing of the waters. Life comes forth out of the dividing of the waters. Same at River Jordan. And God's people enter the promised land. And so the significance of baptism, when Jesus comes out of baptism, there's a new dividing of the waters leading God's people into freedom. And so uh, that is, you know, the theme of baptism itself goes back to the creation account and you've got multi-layered references in there i mean the holy spirit is connected with water as water is a symbol of the holy spirit you know out of your mouth out of your inner being will flow rivers of living water jesus says in john chapter 7 and then i added to that is this picture that goes back to creation and the red sea of god bringing life up out of the waters and so it's it's very powerful symbolism and yeah in when it, when jesus says you must be born of water and the spirit in john 3 right well let me let me let me get to that in a moment uh i'll get to that in a moment but uh you know all these things show i mean first of all you raise the issue of baptism how significant baptism is because it's something that goes back to creation uh in its biblical roots uh, and secondly, uh, we realize how interconnected the biblical story is and that we need to recognize some of these, what you might call storylines of the Bible. Uh, another one that is all linked into the work of the Spirit is the loss and restoration of the garden. And of course, Ezekiel, in Genesis, there's rivers, there's the water, that that's the spirit, right? He's there in the garden. And Ezekiel sees the river coming uh, uh, out of the temple, out of the presence of God. That's the Holy Spirit. And there's a river uh, and the tree of life, you know, is on either side of it in the New Jerusalem. 
So all these things are, uh, you know, they're a framework, but it, it's extraordinary to me how, you know, the Bible is constructed over a couple millennia by numerous different, you know, God used dozens of different people, obviously. And yet, without kind of, it almost is like an author has been putting the whole thing together. And of course, an author has been putting the whole thing together. His name is the Holy Spirit. Uh, but no person could have done that. No person could have taken these documents that were assembled and came from so many different places and people over a couple of thousand years and injected these powerful storylines into them. It's absolutely supernatural. But let me let me pick up. Uh, I mean, feel free to interrupt. But uh, yes, God bless you. Uh, I see that hand. Anyway, okay. So, so, uh, I I I stopped at the point of saying there's this remarkable parallel again, one of these parallels between the creation account and Ezekiel's prophecy of the new creation, where there's a two-stage process in both. The man gets formed from the dust, and then there's a breathing into the man to bring him to life, both uh, in both Genesis and Ezekiel. And so what is Ezekiel telling us? He's telling us that something is coming that is going to be an act of new creation. The first creation brought humanity into existence, but then we fell. It all came to a sad end. Adam failed in his commission and so on. But God is not finished with his promises, um, and an act of new creation is required if the purposes of God in the original creation are going to be fulfilled. And so Ezekiel picks this up, and he describes this act of new creation two different ways. Number one, the washing with water, and number and, and, and new creation by the Spirit, as chapter 36. And number two, resurrection by the Spirit in chapter 37. And he also says in the midst of this that this newly created people of God is going to live in a renewed land like the Garden of Eden. And uh, that's the literal phrase. And it's not an accident because... God is in the process of restoring, um, and the two accounts of creation and new creation, which is why we get this theme of the new creation, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation, we get this in the New Testament, and Jesus, as the second Adam, it's the same thing, Jesus is the new creation, there was an old creation, it went wrong, but there's now a new creation, and so so th there's that... Uh, there's that um, parallel or that sort of uh, here's how things went wrong, but here's how God's going to restore them. And he's going to restore them in the same way that that he created in the first place because he hasn't changed his principles or his goals. Uh, and the interesting thing for the purposes of our discussion right now is that the Holy Spirit is front row setter in all of this. And it isn't just Ezekiel. If you go into, into Isaiah, you'll get the spirit, you know, the, the land will remain desolate until the, or Israel, God's people will remain desolate until the spirit is poured out from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field. There's the coming of the spirit and the restoration of the garden. Um, 
and uh, I'll pour water on the thirsty land. Of course, there's a spirit, the water, right? And streams on the dry ground. And in case you don't get connection between the water and the spirit, the next phrase is, I will pour my spirit on your offspring. So the water is the spirit. And, uh, and, and so, you know, and you can follow it through Joel who talks about, um, I will pour out my spirit in all flesh. Uh, and that was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost where these prophecies are not talking about the final resurrection. They're talking about the coming of Jesus. And we know that because Joel, uh, ex- Joel's prophecy, Peter explicitly says, this is it. This is it. It's like Jesus in Isaiah 6, chapter 61. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And, um, and what was prophesied by Isaiah is fulfilled today. Uh, it's not in the future. The kingdom came back then when Jesus brought it to earth. It's not here in its completed form, but it's here in a very real form. Yeah, and, and Jesus uh, says that in Luke 4. In Luke chapter 4, where he quotes mm-hmm. Isaiah 61. And uh, here's here's another, you know, Isaiah chapter 59. Uh, and this is where he links the coming of Jesus with this coming of the Spirit. And a Redeemer will come to Zion as Jesus. And this is my covenant, my Spirit that is upon you. Uh, and my words that I put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth. And this... And and then Isaiah talks in chapter 11 about the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord is going to be on the Messiah. You know, chapter 42, behold my servant, I have, uh, I have put my, behold my servant, I chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will not cry out or lift up his voice, a bruised reed he will not break. Jesus quoted that as well. And said, "This is this is me, right?" And then Isaiah, where he goes on and talks about the blind will see and the lame will walk. Well, when Jesus started doing those miracles, he was saying, "This is it. This is the fulfillment. This is the outpouring of the Spirit uh, is is coming." Um, which, of course, I mean, the Spirit broke in upon Jesus, and and in some other ways that we could talk about in at, at, at around the time of Jesus birth, um, the spirit broke in for the first time in hundreds of years, but then that was fulfilled, of course, at the day of Pentecost. And so, uh, but, but all of this has this magnificent background in the Old Testament. That's what we're supposed to be talking about at the moment. Is, is, so let's pause here and ask an important question. So without question, there is the theme of the Holy Spirit, uh, coming upon people for creation and recreation. We see that in Genesis 1 and Ezekiel 36 and 37. Then again, at the ultimate recreation of mankind, which is the conception and birth of the new, uh, of the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Uh, That is then signified again at uh, his baptism. And then, as you said, fulfilled at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit coming upon all the sons and daughters of God in Christ Jesus after his death and resurrection. Is there a is there a through line for what the Holy Spirit comes upon God's people to do? When the Holy Spirit comes upon us, whether I be Adam or I be Ezekiel's army or I be the son of God himself or I be the church at the day of Pentecost, 
my mind also goes to, I think it's Numbers 13, is it? Uh, with Moses and the 70 elders. I could have that scripture reference wrong. Um, is is there a theme that that takes place in terms of the activity that follows the reception of the Holy Spirit? Yeah, a- absolutely. Uh, the theme is, it starts, it starts in Genesis. It's the commission of Adam. The Holy Spirit was there with Adam in the garden. The commission was to extend the boundaries of Eden, the ends of the earth. And so Mo- Moses, uh, in the passage you quoted, and the elders, it was the government of God on the earth. To Israel was to be a light to the nations. Ultimately, Israel failed in that. Um, and so uh, in, and in Jesus' ministry, the Spirit of God comes upon him, and as soon as that happens, he begins to declare the kingdom of God. So Jesus is going to extend the boundaries of the kingdom in a way that Israel was supposed to and Adam was supposed to, but they didn't do it. But Jesus is going to do it, which is why, Matthew 24, 14, Jesus will not come back until the gospel of the kingdom has come to every people group because Jesus must succeed in his commission of bringing the kingdom. But you can't bring the kingdom without the Spirit. And this is a really important point for us today because uh, we know that where we... Uh, numbers 11, sorry, not 13. Right. Go ahead. Where we I, was, ignore... I was listening, but I was also correcting my mistake at the same time. Where we, where we ignore um, the presence of the Holy Spirit, where we take the Holy Spirit for granted, where the Holy Spirit becomes a point of doctrine, a piece of paper, not a reality, when we deny various aspects of his present work, you know, we're in putting in peril the entire kingdom project by which we are to um, obey Christ in, in, in extending the boundaries of the kingdom to the ends of the earth through the power of his spirit between now and when he returns. And that's not going to happen without the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't want to get into an argument. I'm not trying to, you know, slate people who... Uh, did, uh, you know, I'm not trying to criticize people who have a different theology than I am. Uh, I'm just trying to say, in terms of like know, continuation of gifts, kind of thing. You mean, right? And right. and or and we'll, it, we'll get it, into that in the next episode. It's it is true that in some churches it's the Father, Son, and Holy Bible, and uh, I I've seen that, you know, and and I absolutely exalt the authority of Scripture, but I don't understand why some people think. Well, you you can't have the spirit and the Bible at the same time. There seems to be some opposition, you know. I mean, to me, the spirit leads you into truth and all sorts of things. But um, you know, the point is that without the empowering of the spirit, and I was listening to a video clip of John Wimber, your fellow Los Angelino or whatever your you guys are called. Anyway, uh, and he was he was in his early days. This was back years and years, decades ago. And uh, he was talking about doing the stuff. That was a, <laughs> that was phrase. his phrase. Yeah. And uh, when when are we going to do the stuff? When are we going to do the stuff? And it was hilarious, you know. In, in this, it's sad and hilarious at the same time. In that he'd been doing the devil's stuff, you know, when he was a uh, in the music world, and he got saved, and he decided, okay, he knew the power of the supernatural. Now, and he's reading his Bible. Now we're going to do God's stuff, and he. He, he started attending church and they were talking all about the stuff and how great it was. 
to when it happened 2000 years ago, but nobody was doing it. <laughs> and, you know, doing the stuff requires, as John Wimber understood very, very well, it requires the presence, empowering and anointing of the Holy Spirit. And I do not mean in some creepy, wacko, you know, manner. I'm, I'm talking about biblical. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. It was the spirit was upon Jesus. And because we are in Christ, the spirit is upon us. And we should not apologize for, you know, ex re requiring, seeking, uh, experiencing the empowering of the Holy Spirit, so long as that empowering is focused on, is Christ exalting and his kingdom mm -hmm. advancing? <laughs> yes, yes. A and we should say that it seems... That the Holy Spirit seems to come upon God's people for two reasons. Number one, intimacy with and the empowering of ministry ministry to the Father from us. So our relationship, like the Holy Spirit places us in Christ. So when, when Paul says that we are in Christ, that's not that's not just an imaginative thing. You know, it, it's not just a status that's legally declared. Uh, it is also a relational reality that supernaturally by the Holy Spirit, we are in Christ, we are joined to Christ, and in Christ we are therefore joined to the Father. So there's there's one reason there why the Holy Spirit comes upon us, our relationship to the Godhead. And then number two, which and you see that in uh, in Eden, in the beginning, it's it's not just the extension of Eden, it is relationship with God. But then also there's the reality of the work, doing the stuff, the advancement of God's kingdom, which happens both through demonstration of power and transformation of person. Um, and so as you talked about, and John Wimber certainly emphasized uh, the demonstration of power. I highly recommend his book, by the way, anyone who's listening to this, Power Evangelism, really inspiring read. Um, and then on the other side of demonstration of power is encountered with God and the transformation of the person, uh, people being overcome by the power of the Holy Spirit and being born again. You you can only be born again. You can only be made new through the Spirit, um, getting born from above. And in that, you you become a new person, a new creation. That seems to be the reason the Holy Spirit comes upon us. And so if we're not seeking after the advancement of the kingdom, then something is amiss, something is awry there. There's some broad strokes for us. We see Holy Spirit at the very beginning. We see Numbers 11 there, just to again clarify that point. The Holy Spirit comes upon these 70 elders. He also comes upon some other dudes who were still in the camp and Joshua, and this is a prophetic moment in scripture. Joshua goes to Moses and says, hey, there's some people prophesying in the camp. And Moses says, are you zealous? Are you jealous for my sake? Would that God put his Holy Spirit on all of his people? And so that's a pointing forward to Pentecost. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And so that seems to be God's desire completely uh, from the beginning is that we would all receive the Holy Spirit prophecy there is, I take to be kind of a categorical representative of a supernatural life where we minister to God supernaturally and we also do God's work supernaturally. Yeah. Do you think we're missing anything? Any like key well, moments? I, I th yeah. I, th I think the interesting thing is that uh, what, did, what did the Jewish uh, rabbis, the Jewish theologians uh, how did they handle the Holy Spirit? 
And uh, how did they handle the absence of God? Uh, because they believed that with the death of the last prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, around 400 years before the time of Christ, that God had uh, withdrawn his spirit from the people. And it's interesting in the Jewish rabbinic writings, they had a really uh, acute understanding of the work of the spirit. They'd read their Old Testament. They understood the spirit was linked to everything from, you know, resurrections from the dead, uh, like with, say, Elijah, Elisha, and so on, those kind of miracles, all the way over to Bezalel, uh, Urian, or Bezalel and Aholiab, um, you know, the, the engravers, the jewelers, the artisans, uh, whatever you call them. And, and the Spirit is described as being upon them. So they understood the work of the Spirit very well and that it was widespread and related to prophecy as well. So they, they, got, they got it, you know. And, of course, they were honest enough to realize that that had stopped and they couldn't figure out why, but they came to the position that the nation had grieved the spirit and fallen into sin or rebellion or whatever. But they prophesied. They, I'm sorry. They, they, they referred to the spirit as the spirit of prophecy, because prophecy was kind of I think you alluded to this kind of a coverall term for work of the spirit, um, and they believed that the spirit of prophecy would be restored when the Messiah came and accompanied by fire and light. And so when you go into the opening pages in the New Testament, you see the Spirit falling on Elizabeth and Mary and Zechariah and Anna and Simeon. And, and, and I think I maybe missed somebody, but there's five or six people on whom the Spirit falls and they begin to prophesy. And well, we just John, read, even John the Baptist in the womb. John the Baptist, was the, he's the other one. And so, um, you know, not to mention Jesus, but in... At the beginning of uh, the New Testament, we, we're so familiar with these stories, we read them and so on. But what we forget to realize is that this was extraordinary. The Holy Spirit had not rested upon anybody for 400 years, according to the Jewish rabbis. Um, and now, all of a sudden, uh, the Spirit of God is coming on all these different people. Before I get carried away, my light is disappearing here. Am I looking rather dark? Oh, yeah. It happened so slowly, I didn't even notice it. Um, it's because there is a thunderstorm. Let me just turn a light on here. The old Canadian thunderstorms. There we go. Anyway, uh, so, you know, if the worst happens, we'll be out of power and the Lord will have uh, cut this se this session short. But um, So, you know, that, so we, we, we have no notion of the impact that that must have, how extraordinary that must have been. Um, and they were almost like precursors of the fact the Spirit is coming. You know, God is doing something extraordinary. The Spirit is falling on a half a dozen different people that are there in Jerusalem, and they're prophesying. And 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 what is this? You know, of course, mm -hmm. they didn't know what it was, but it, it must have made a considerable impression. They were godly people. Um, Uriah was a priest and was struck dumb. And then everybody knew about it. Everybody knew it in, in, in Jerusalem, in the religious mm. establishment, so on. And then when, when after many months, Zechariah's speech is restored, 
he begins to prophesy. That hadn't happened in 400 years. Imagine if, you know, the last time we heard of a recorded prophecy was in the year 1623. <laughs> and all of a sudden in 2023, a bunch of people started to prophesy. Right. We would be slightly shocked, wouldn't we? <laughs> and so that's the work of the Spirit. You know, it was the re restoration of the Holy Spirit. That's why at Pentecost, when the Spirit came with fire and light, as the Jewish rabbis had taught he would come, that's why thousands were converted. They weren't even converted at Calvary or through Jesus' miracles. It was when the Spirit came, because that was what the Word of God had taught them. That authenticated the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. So, you know, we talk about the Holy Spirit. He is so important. He is God. He is God on earth. And if we don't have the Spirit, you know, we don't have God. Because I know it's anthropomorphic. It's God is, you know, on the Father, the, this God is on his throne and the Son at his right hand. I know Jesus and the Father not sitting on chairs somewhere. We just been, my wife has been shopping for accent chairs and she has taste that is probably pickier than the Holy Spirit's, the one thousand one. But they're not sitting on these beautiful accent chairs in heaven. That's anthropomorphic language. It's just describing God in human language best we can. But the the truth of it is the Holy Spirit has been said he is God on earth. And if we don't have him, we don't have the presence of God on earth. So this is a serious, serious uh, thing to be put at the very center of our theology and our church experience. Thank God we Lord. have not been left as orphans then. We, we've talked about the Holy Spirit before us, the church. We've talked about the Holy Spirit's role in the beginning of us, the church. Let's close this session with discussing uh, now what. So the church exists and has existed for nearly 2,000 years. The Holy Spirit has been upon God's people and in God's people for that time. What, what does, let's maybe consider what Paul says in Ephesians, where he says, don't, uh, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Being drunk with wine is, is debauchery or wastefulness, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So Paul is talking to an existing Christian community who are already in Christ, they already have the Holy Spirit, and yet Paul says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. What are we to take from that? How do we apply that? Well, Ephesians chapter 5, be filled with the Spirit. It's in the Greek present continuous. So it means every day we need to be refilled with the Spirit. And you're going to have had a great experience, powerful, supernatural experience, you know, 20 years ago or 20 weeks ago. But the point is you need to be refilled with God's Spirit every day. And of course, I know theologically, we're made regenerate. We're born again by the Spirit. The Spirit is within us. That's true. But somehow we need a filling. And we, we need to invite the Holy Spirit. As another Wimberism, right? John Wimber said, we invite the Holy Spirit. And some people go off and half-cocked and say, well, my goodness, you know, we can't invite the Holy Spirit. He's already here. Yeah, but, you know, do you really welcome Jesus into your life every day? And, and, uh, and if you don't, you should be. And so... We need to have fresh encounters with the Holy Spirit and, and, and not just, no matter what our experience has or hasn't been, we need to have an experience of the Spirit today. Be continually filled. That's what Paul's saying over and over and over again. Seems you like can't there's a, 
yesterday's experience of the spirit. And are we are we content to say simply that the activity that accompanies that filling is spending time in prayer and meditating on God's word? Seems to me to be a link between what Paul says in Ephesians five to Colossians. Ah, uh, man, where is it? I don't know. Colossians two, three, or four. <laughs> Let the word of Christ uh, dwell among you or in you richly. Um, and then he starts to describe the same kinds of behavior, singing and spiritual songs that come along with Ephesians chapter five, being filled with the Spirit. Are we content to say that that kind of activity is is what is going to position us for that feeling? That's certainly a big part of it. It's <laughs> our it's our fellowship with the Lord, <laughs> and and of course it includes our corporate worship. I was going to say corporately too. Yeah. I think, yeah, you know, pro- probably especially. It, it's it's yeah, let the we, word of Christ dwell among you richly, like plural. It, it is a probably mainly. It's a corporate activity. The individual activity is probably we we maybe invert that. We think about personal quiet time as the main means, and corporate gathering is the cherry on top. But it's it. My take would be that it's actually the inverse of that. Well, I mean, what he's saying is he's addressing the congregation, so he's going to speak right. in the plural. But I do think that what we bring, you know, into, and we get into this in our next session, if anyone has a tongue or interpretation or something, you know, it's almost like you want to bring something with you into the service. Sure. You, you you want to have something there in your walk with God, not just relying on the the corporate gathering to kind of pump you up again mm-hmm. and if if you have a bunch of people that are have had a living experience of god walking into the midst i think it increases the presence of god mm-hmm. so i Great. mean i think both aspects are certainly important yes and the yes. corporate empowers us you know for the rest of the week until we gather again mm-hmm. as far as i understand too in the earliest days of the church, it wasn't even just a weekly gathering. It was, in many instances, daily. They were getting together. Sure. And and that should still, in a, in a sense, it, well, it is the case in churches that have life in them. I mean, you've got small groups going on all through the week, different sorts of groups, and you've got people having fellowship with one another and talking about the things of God and encouraging and strengthening, you know, each other. And that should be... A, a, a daily thing that goes on, mm-hmm. especially when you again recover this the the supernatural aspect to our existence when we get together for fellowship, whether one on one or in a small group or on Sundays. The Spirit is in our midst. Like how cool is that? The Holy Spirit is with us, right? And and He wants to fill us and empower us for the the day's activity, the day's work. I'm hungry for more supernatural activity to take place in my own life, whether that be inner transformation or outer demonstration of power. And that's really the point and the purpose of this this conference that we started doing last year. We, we, we all have a sense of how we ought to be living. I want to close the gap between the sense of how we ought and the reality of what is. Thank you guys cool. so much for joining us for Good Theology Podcast. We appreciate you listening. Hopefully this has been helpful. For you, David and I will be back next week with a follow-up part two on this conversation, going a bit more specifically into gifts of the Holy Spirit. God bless you guys. See you soon.